Good morning. Our first Bible reading for today is from Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about twelve, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. They all denied it. Peter said, Master, the people are crowding you and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone has touched me. I know the power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's mother and father. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead, but he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned at once, and she stood up. Then Jesus told her to give them, her, them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Our second Bible reading from today is from Isaiah 45, verses 20, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all you at the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Good morning. Well, this should be interesting. I am not in witness protection, uh, although we are in isolation here in lockdown in the Blacktown LGA uh, under the latest restrictions due to the spread of the COVID-19 virus. Hope you're staying safe. Hope you're staying home. Uh, my name is Jonathan. If we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm glad to be meeting you this way. Uh, thank you to Noel for that wonderful Bible reading, and thank you as well to Ian Shaw for leading us in prayer. I know it's a bit different today. Uh, not exactly how we want to be gathering, but I'm glad that you're here and I'm glad that you can be joining me as we open God's Word together. We have been working through the Gospel of Luke in a series titled The Way of Salvation, and the goal of this series has been to understand who Jesus is and how he brings us salvation. This morning we're going to continue that journey through the Gospel of Luke by looking at Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. And I encourage you, if you don't have your Bible with you already, now's a great time to grab it. We'll be looking through it today. But we're going to try to keep it a bit simple this morning. I know some people have joked that maybe with me recording from home, we're going to add another 15, 20 minutes to the message. Uh, but no, we're just going to try to keep it simple today. Uh, so uh, grab your Bible. We're going to work through this story of healing, and we're going to draw a few lessons from that. Uh, but right now, I invite you to pray with me as we open God's Word together. Would you bow your heads? Father in heaven, we're grateful this morning for the way that you lead us, for your faithfulness, for the way that your spirit empowers us to live as your people, to shine brightly in dark places. Father, I pray this morning as we gather under your word that we would be reminded of just how different your kingdom is and how readily your power is available. Lord, help us not to lose heart, but help us to continue in trust and love, knowing that you go before us. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said this morning, we're going to be working through Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. This is a story of healing. And if you remember, Jesus is presented by Luke as doing three consecutive, uh, really miraculous healings, uh, miraculous demonstrations of his power, I should say. Uh, back earlier in chapter 8, Jesus had taught the disciples about the importance of hearing well. And he said famously in verse 18 that whoever has will be given more, and whoever doesn't have, even what they think they have, will be taken from them. And people have taken that a lot of different ways, and uh, I think it's best understood to hear that as a response to Jesus' parable of the sower, where he says, to whoever has ears, let them hear. And I think what Jesus is getting at is that those who hear him rightly will continue this journey in faith. They'll continue to follow him. They'll continue to receive from him. And what they can expect is to see more of him. In other words, if you come to Jesus with trust, that's what you will be given more knowledge and insight into who he is and the kingdom that he's bringing. Well, this is what exactly begins to take place in the narrative for the disciples. Following on from that parable, Jesus then leads his disciples across the Sea of Galilee and they encounter a storm. And you remember in that storm, the disciples are afraid they're going to drown. They wake Jesus up. And after they wake him up, he calms the storm with a single word. So Jesus is demonstrating his control over nature. Later on, when they land on the other side, the disciples don't find it any easier because they see Jesus confronted with somebody who was possessed by numerous demons. And here he is succumbed, he is enslaved, he is captive to forces of evil that human beings cannot control and cannot understand. But yet this man who can't be bound here is prostrate before Jesus at his feet. And Jesus, again, with a word, is commanding this host of demons to leave him. So Jesus has demonstrated his power over nature. He's demonstrated his power over demons. But here today, even though you may not have found yourself in a disaster or you may not find yourself uh, encountering demonic forces, but here today we're going to see Jesus meets a foe and overcomes that foe that is common to all of us. And that is the foe of death itself. If you look at these three forces, uh, a fallen creation that's hostile to human beings, rebellious evil spirits, and and bodies that are that are fallen and are subject to decay, these are all a result of life without God, life outside of the Garden of Eden. When human beings sinned, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, they were rebelling against God. And the consequence for that was a broken relationship with God. They were cut off from that fellowship. And being cut off, they were sent outside of the garden where God dwells to face an existence where they would have to work a ground, a nature, uh, an environment that was hostile to them, where they would be uh, not in the company of God, but in the company of the devil and of his, his demons, and where they would be faced with bodies that do not function the way that they would, that they should, and they do not live forever, but bodies that would succumb to decay. And these three forces, you could argue, are the biggest threats to human life. And so here in Luke chapter 8, this picture is one of Jesus overcoming each of our greatest threats. Now, I'm sitting here this morning because we all recognize how dangerous the threat of death is. In fact, this COVID-19 pandemic, which continues to rage on here in 2021 as Sydney grapples with the Delta variant. This pandemic shows us, and these measures, these restrictions that we find ourselves in, show us just how precious and fragile human life is. It's kind of the secret that nobody really likes to face, just how fragile and mortal we are. But it's the very thing that Jesus can overcome. 
And we'll see in this story today that Jesus restores life. So what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to look through, we're going to read through this story. I'm going to stop along the way, point out a few uh, interesting tidbits. Uh, we're going to stop, sort of understand the tension and the drama that's building in this story. Uh, and then at the end, we're going to look at three things that are revealed. And these might be uh, three lessons that you might want to take away. We're going to see what's revealed about the identity of Jesus. We're going to see what's reveal, revealed about the kingdom of God. And we're going to see what's revealed about the nature of faith. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to jump into the text right now. So you can follow with me along as I read them in the NIV. So we read in verse 40 that when Jesus had returned, a crowd welcomed him for they were all expecting him. Now you may not have been listening last week, but it, if you were, you would have recalled that Jesus was sent away from the region of the Gerasenes. In that space, Jesus was not welcome. They didn't believe, they didn't want his ministry. And so they asked him to leave. So we find quite the opposite here when Jesus arrives back in Galilee on the other side of the lake. There's a crowd that's welcoming him and a crowd that's expecting and waiting for him. And this crowd is going to be a feature in this story. So I'm going to encourage you to sort of mark their movements as we go through. But notice, here is Jesus. He gets a welcome, and they're all expecting something from him. They're, they're, they're waiting for him. And that's going to lead into our big question for this morning, which is, what are we expecting of Jesus? What are we waiting on him to do? This crowd is eager, and they're waiting for him. But the story quickly focuses in verse 41 on a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, who came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Here, Jesus, among the crowd, is faced with a leader in the community. He was a synagogue ruler, which meant he was responsible to see that the Torah was upheld, to see that the people gathered and were instructed in the ways of the Lord. And this man, Jairus, doesn't come with any of these credentials. He comes and bows at the feet of Jesus. There it is again, humbly pleading with him. Why? Because he's desperate. His daughter, his only daughter of about 12, was dying. This girl was just entering into the prime of her life. There wasn't necessarily a lot of uh, power or mobility for a young woman in Galilee in those days. But life really began to take on its own about this age. When girls entered into womanhood, they would be betrothed in marriage. They would find a future husband. They would find uh, perhaps the possibility of rearing a family if the Lord gave them children. And so here she is stepping into the prime of her life, and here she's interrupted uh, with this illness. And I wonder if you can relate. Sometimes you feel like things are just coming together for us. They're just sort of falling into place and suddenly out of nowhere we're hit with something that doesn't make any sense and it just seems to throw all our plans into ruin. And here Jairus, a man who is most likely well standing, upstanding in the community, he is there pleading at the feet of Jesus, literally bowing before him, begging him to come and to heal his daughter. He doesn't even get the command out. He's just simply, come to my house. The expectation is that if Jesus comes, he will be able to do something about this. He's a desperate man. There is something that is very humbling about mortality, be it in our own life or the lives of those around us. Nothing can bring proud people to their knees faster than a crisis of health or disease, faster than grief and the pain of losing a loved one, the prospect of seeing somebody you love cut short in the midst of their life. Many people who don't even believe in God find this is the basis for a lot of their beginnings of their prayers. And Jesus decides to go with him. 
Jesus hears this desperate man and he goes on his way, but the crowds are coming too. They're coming and they're crushing around him. And there, we're told in verse 43, was a woman among this crowd who was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Note the number 12. Now, you could understand this to be she's been bleeding from the age of 12, or it's been a period of 12 years in which she's suffered from this condition. And there was no one who could heal her. Some manuscripts show and tell us that this woman had spent a lot of her money, all her wealth on doctors trying to fix her condition. Now you may say, well, that sounds like a bad condition, but it's really nothing compared to what this other daughter is going through, this 12-year-old girl who's about to die. But I want you to consider this and consider the plight of this woman, this woman who has a flow of blood uh, that wasn't cyclical, but a flow that was constant. That meant that she was unclean. That meant she was excluded from social and religious life. It also meant that prospects for her future through marriage and childbearing were brought to nothing because she wasn't somebody who was considered worthy of being married, even able to be married. And then when you consider the fact that she had squandered all her resources, finding every possible human help available, all medicine that could help her, and that she spent all her money on this only to find out that they couldn't help her. Now, to all this condition, poverty comes upon her. This is a woman who is crowded around Jesus. And we're told that, like Jairus, she makes an approach, but this time it's from a different way. Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. You can imagine her in this sea of people, knowing this condition that she had, knowing how desperate she was, thinking, if only I can just lay hold of Christ. She wasn't so bold as to come face to face and to ask Jesus like Jairus did. Who knows, maybe that would have been seen as something unacceptable in society. But still, she decides she's going to lay hold of him. And then we come to verse 45. After her bleeding has stopped, we get this curious question from Jesus. He says, who touched me? Now, here's the scene. The crowd is, is pressing in around Jesus Verse 42 said the crowd was almost crushing him or literally choking him. And here is Jesus, with these people pressed around him, and the woman has touched him. And Jesus says, who touched me? And I bet if you were there, you would have said something similar to Peter. After everyone denied it and said, we didn't really touch you or lay hold of you, Peter looked around and said, Master, the, Peter, the people are crowding and pressing against you. As if to say, uh, Jesus, everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? But Jesus moves to his point, verse 46, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out of me. This is really fascinating because it shows Jesus is aware on two levels. Number one, he's aware that he has power. There is a supernatural, otherworldly power inherent in Jesus, and he's aware of it. And secondly, he's aware of where that power goes. And he understands that that power has gone out of him. The woman is now in a predicament. This condition, this affliction that she had, which I can only imagine must have been very private and very grievous, this state of being perpetually unclean and excluded, her, her poverty, all of this, I imagine like most of us, she would have wanted to escape notice, but we're told in verse 47 that she saw she could not go unnoticed, and so she comes trembling and she ends up like Jairus, falling at the feet of Jesus. 
And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. On the one hand, we can stand back and we can marvel at her boldness to go and reach out and to seize hold of Jesus. But there is something in this woman that doesn't want to be in the spotlight. She doesn't want to be the focus or the center of attention. I wonder if you can relate to that. Many of us carry private burdens, private griefs, griefs, things that we hold close to our heart that are very painful and hurtful, and we're secretly trusting and waiting on Jesus Christ to free us or heal us or deliver us or save us from these things. Maybe it's a problem or a question. Maybe, maybe it's your own physical disability. Maybe it's a condition that's been afflicting you. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's, it's a traumatic experience from your past that you don't feel like you can bring into the light, but yet you're, you're there and you're clinging privately, secretly, humbly in your heart before Jesus. How would you feel having been healed to now have to bring this to the light? You see, Jesus in asking this question, who touched me? I know power has gone out for me. He is drawing her out, that her healing would come into the light. And notice what she says, in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. She brought out the reason why. Many of us are happy to say, Jesus loves me and Jesus forgave me. But sometimes when it comes to the nitty gritty of saying what he's actually done for me, we get a bit embarrassed, we get a bit fearful, we feel ashamed. But this woman who didn't even have the boldness to face Jesus here now, when prompted by him, falls at his feet and in the security of his healing power, she lets her whole story be known to everyone. Look how Jesus responds, verse 48. He said to her, daughter, it's a key word, daughter, your faith has healed you. Literally, your faith has saved you. Jesus looks at her action and he says, this, this is faith, and faith has saved you. It's because of your faith. This is remarkable because this means in a sea of people who were pressing around Jesus, in a crowd of people that wanted to see what he was going to do next, in the midst of this popularity, and all of the people thronging around, rallying to, to follow the spectacle of this Messiah. Out of all these people, there's one person who laid hold of him in faith. And that was this woman. And when engaged by Christ after her healing, humbly at his feet, she acknowledges all that he's done for her. And Jesus says, this, this is faith. Your faith, your faith has saved you. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, this is the good news. This is the hope that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to talk a little bit more at the end about the nature of faith. But what you need to see here is that it's not the amount of faith that makes it work. It's the object of the faith that makes it efficacious, that makes it productive, that, that makes faith saving. In other words, it's because... She had faith in Jesus. You see, often we have to come to the end of ourselves before we actually turn to God, before we actually begin to look for a Redeemer. We need to come to that point where we say, I'm out of answers. 
I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm out of resources. Every relationship, every resource that I might have had, all of that is gone. I have no way of saving myself. But on my knees, I will humbly turn to God. And in that desperation, we lay hold of Christ and find his power at work. Find his healing. Find his redemption. Find his salvation. It's as easy as that. Oftentimes we can get confused about the nature of faith. We can think that faith is a feeling because there's so many things that are important to us and so many things that might trigger us, so many strong emotions that might move us to a place of faith. We can get confused thinking faith is a feeling. We can get confused into thinking that faith is, is a knowledge, that, that faith is, is simply possessing the answers to the, to the questions, to being able to tick the box and say, yes, this is my understanding. But as we've seen last week and back a few months ago in the book of James, even the demons know the right answers to these questions. Even the demons have in some degree a right theology. What they don't have is a right heart orientation. They're not rightly related to God. They're not living in faith. They're living in rebellion. So if faith is not a feeling and faith isn't right knowledge, what is faith? Some have described faith as an active trust, an active reliance. The thing that you're resting on, the one that you're leaning on, the one you turn to, this woman turned to Jesus. She had the confident expectation that if she could just, if she could just lay hold of Christ, that he would save and he would heal. This is faith. But you'll recall this story began on a quest for healing, but it wasn't her healing. It was the healing of another daughter, another daughter who was about to die. Luke has left us hanging, but in verse 49, the story picks up. We're told, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Don't bother Jesus anymore. It's too late. She's gone. We can almost hear the words of Mary and Martha as they were waiting to see Jesus after their brother Lazarus, Lazarus had died. And they said, Lord, if only you'd been here, Lazarus wouldn't have had to die. This is the, the logic of, of the messenger from, from Jairus' house. They come and he says, she's dead. It's too late. You mean to tell me that because Jesus stopped, and healed this woman. Someone else couldn't be healed. And here Luke is bringing to the forefront this tension. Does Jesus play favorites? Is he only got time for some and not others? Maybe you feel like you've been put on the shelf. Maybe you feel like God's not going to redeem you. God's healing his power are not going to be at work in your life. It's too late. You look at your circumstances and the body is cold. The corpse is no longer breathing. Hearing this, Jesus said, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. Notice Jesus recognizes something that we've been pointing out the last few weeks, that fear and faith don't like to go together. 
There's a right fearing of the Lord that can bring us to a position of dependence upon God, but there is another kind of fear that becomes so overwhelmed with the circumstances that it doesn't understand God properly, doesn't see in Jesus his saving grace or his saving power. Have you ever felt that way, that God is against you? There's no way you would be healed, not because God couldn't, but because he simply doesn't want to. I wonder if Jairus was thinking some of these thoughts. And I wonder if Jesus anticipated this when he said to him, don't fear, just believe. And he makes a promise, she will be healed. Literally, she will be saved. When Jesus arrived at the house of Jairus, verse 51, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. You get the scene, Jesus arrives, and the, the grief has already started. Unlike the other woman in the story whose grief was very personal and very private and left only behind closed doors for doctors, here the grief is public. This man is a beloved member of the community, and, and his daughter is someone who would have been esteemed. Everyone would have been saying, I wonder what's going to happen to her. What a bright future she's going to have. I wonder whom she'll marry, whom she'll be betrothed to. I wonder who her descendants will be. I wonder what will come of her life. And so before Jesus is even in the house, the wailing in the morning has already begun. And Jesus decides only five people are going to go in with him. Peter, James, John, those who first responded to his call, and the child's father and mother, Jairus and his wife. Verse 52, meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Jesus said, stop wailing. She's not dead, but asleep. Jesus addresses the crowd. He takes a moment to look at the crowd and say, don't weep. Don't cry. Is this some kind of joke? She's not dead, but asleep? Verse 53, they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. You see, the people knew. They'd seen a dead body before. They knew what it was to be dead. You don't fix dead as the old saying goes, there's two things that always come, death and taxes. C.S. Lewis famously said, one out of one person dies. They laugh at Jesus, knowing that she was dead. Here it seems that Jesus has missed his opportunity. That, yeah, sure, maybe he could have done something about it, but it's too late now. And you have to wonder, what's going through Jairus' mind as he's standing there, as Jesus calls him in? He must have been saying, well, here I am. I'm still with you, Jesus. I have no idea what's going to happen. I had hoped for so much more than this. And all I'm confronted with is this disappointment and literally death. But nevertheless, there he was. And in verse 54, we read these words. Jesus took her by the hand and said, my child. My child, get up. Luke records that her spirit returned and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Jesus called back her spirit from death. When we were talking about this in sermon in scripture, Pastor Stephen reminded us about how often in the Bible, death is pictured as this this series of cords, these, these strings that bind and entangle the soul, so that once, once someone dies, their spirit leaves their body and it's bound in death, in Hades or Sheol. The corpse is all that remains. 
But here, Jesus exhibits raising power because he calls her spirit back from death and he returns it to her body and she is alive again and participating with her family. Verse 56, he, her parents were astonished. I would be. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. A private miracle. Well, there's so much that we could talk about from this story, the story of two healings, the story of one encapsulated with the other. While there's much to be said, what we need to see here is that these two women are linked. Their two stories are united. There's so many overlapping themes, so many little clues that tie them together, both dealing with a physical affliction, one worse than the other, and that it leads to death. Both called a daughter, both this link with the number 12. In the process of healing, the role of faith is highlighted in their salvation. And in linking these two stories, we have to stop and we have to say, what, what is Luke trying to communicate to us? What is he trying to show us? Well, as I said at the outset, I think there's three things that are revealed through this passage. Three things that I think Luke is trying to get across to Theophilus and by extension to us who would be seeking to follow in the steps of faith. The first has to do with the identity of Jesus. The main theme of this section has been to understand who Jesus is. Jesus began in chapter 8 by telling his disciples the parable of the sower. We read about how he would come and he would be the one who spreads the word of God, the message of the arrival of the kingdom of God, this, this upside down, topsy-turvy, reversing, ruling power of God that's going to set everything right, but in a way that we wouldn't expect it. And in Jesus saying he was going to bring this, he said, he's like a sower who throws out seed. But not everybody perceives or receives this word properly. And he would go on to say, it's only those who hear in faith who will receive more. And then Luke follows that up with these three massive healings, these three massive miracles, the calming of the storm, the casting out of the demons, and here Jesus' power over death. This reveals to us that Jesus has divine authority. As the creator of men and women, as the one who made the capstone of all God's creation, Jesus has the authority and the right to call them back from the dead. He has the right to reverse the curse. He has the right to restore physical healing and ultimately to restore eternal life to all those who would believe. This is who Jesus is. He's not simply a wonder worker. He's, he's not a shaman. He's, he's not a witch doctor. He's, he's not someone who's, who's just in the business of putting together miraculous cures. He is someone who commands souls. And that right only belongs to God. Never get that confused. There's all sorts of people who may, through one spiritual power or another, or, or through their own ingenuity, might, might be able to give advice or counsel that, that brings good healing. But there's only one, there's only one captain of your soul. Your soul is accountable to God. And Jesus exercises in this passage an authority over the human spirit that belongs only to God. It's showing us his divine authority. 
Just like only God can command the rebellious evil forces, and just like only God can calm the chaotic creation that is in rebellion, that is suffering under the curse of the fall. So Jesus here possesses that divine authority. We need to see that. We need to recognize that. So as much as the crowd was looking at Jesus as a teacher or as a wonder worker or as someone who I like to think that the paparazzi would have been fascinated with, Jesus, more than that, is God in flesh. This has been the confession of the church from the beginning. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's not simply to see Jesus as a popular figure. It's not to be interested in Jesus, but it's to see him as divine. It's not saying that he is simply a wonder worker or someone who is, has incredible power or someone who was able to whip up a great following, but to be a Christian is to affirm that God has come in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Is that what you believe? That's what Luke is presenting him to be for us. And what a glorious hope that he can restore and reverse all of the fallenness of humanity. That's the first thing revealed in this message. The second thing revealed in this chapter is something about the nature of the kingdom of God. As we've hinted at, only God himself could undo this curse that has befallen his creation. Only God could restore us back into fellowship and relationship with him. But here we get a glimpse of what life is like in the kingdom of God. We see that in the kingdom of God, there is hope for men and women to be what they were made to be, that the word of judgment is not the final word, that the word of curse is not the final word, that death itself, this thing that has been ruling like a tyrant over every human being, no matter rich or poor, no matter good or bad or indifferent, no matter young, old, what class, what gender, what race, what ethnicity, no matter what death has been ruling over humanity. But in the kingdom of God, death itself will be overthrown. That's the hint. That's the glimpse here. And the physical condition will be restored. Some religions and some philosophies look at death as an escape from the embodied world. But God gave us a physical creation because he is good and he is a God who is able to create matter and enliven that matter. And so he formed us, and so he made us, and so heaven is not, it's not this disembodied existence, but the kingdom of God that is coming is a physical existence, a physical existence full of the delights and the pleasures that were intended when God first made us, but are so foreign to us now. If you've been spending any time with me over the last few months, you've probably heard me complain at some point how I've had to get a new hip. But what a blessing it is to to be able to get surgery and to have the broken parts of me re replaced by machinery. But one of the side effects is after my surgery, my legs were not the same length. The best efforts and the best science of man, they can't get my legs the same length. So every single step that I take, I'm reminded every single step of my imperfection, of my physical limitation. It's very difficult for us to perceive what it would be like to, enable, to embody a perfect physical existence. But the miracles of Jesus, let alone the very resurrection itself, is a reminder to us that in the kingdom of God, God's creation will be fully and finally and perfectly good as it was made originally. This is brought about by the work of Christ. 
And then there's one last thing revealed. We've revealed, we've seen revealed something of the identity of Jesus. We've seen revealed something about the kingdom of God. But there's something revealed about the importance of faith in this passage. And I think that's deliberate. You see, more than the preceding two accounts of Jesus still calming the storm and Jesus casting out the legion of demons, here in this section, faith is the response of men and women, the right response to the ministry of Jesus is highlighted for us. Faith is so important. It moves God. You could summarize this passage by saying Jesus honors those who lay hold of the gift of salvation by faith. God loves faith and he is moved by people who trust in him. This is incredibly good news. It is also incredibly difficult because it's so easy for us to fall in line with the crowd. I said at the outset, the crowd in this passage functions a bit like a character in its own right. And when we first meet the crowd, we see a crowd that's eager and happy to see Jesus. Jesus comes back from the other side of the lake like a kid coming back from a missionary trip or a summer camp away. And, and the whole church is there and they're gathered around and they're saying, oh, Jesus, it's so great to see you. I'm so glad that you're here. And they're interested and they're, they're giving Jesus their attention. But that's not faith. Faith doesn't merely pay attention to Jesus. It approaches Jesus like Jairus and this woman. Moreover, as, as Jesus is on the move, so the crowd moves with him. But there's only one in that crowd who actually lays hold of him. You see, there's a difference between rallying to the church and rallying to the ethics of Christianity and, and rallying behind the worldview. And while, yes, we want as many people to come into the church as, as possible, what you need to understand is the way you come into the church is by reaching out for Jesus. You have to receive from him. You have to approach him, you have to take what only he can give. And that's something that only you can do. Nobody can do that for you. Nobody can be baptized for you. Nobody can repent for you. Nobody can pursue the Lord, can seek his face. No one can humble themselves for you. You have to do that. You have to come to him. You see, it's not enough to be a part of the crowd that day. It's not enough to cast an eye of interest to Jesus. At some point, you need to weigh in. Does this Jesus have something that I'm looking for? The cautionary tale comes at the end of the story. Jesus says to the crowd who's wailing, who's so confronted by the reality of death and has embraced that reality and, and has dismissed Jesus' possibility to do anything. Jesus doesn't even tell them what he actually does. It gives them a little word. He says, oh, she's asleep. Don't, don't weep. She's asleep. It's as if he's dismissing the possibility that they would really understand what he could do. And in the end, he tells the parents and he tells Peter, James, and John, don't say to anyone what's happened here. Keep it a secret. Why is that? I think the answer comes in what Jesus' mission was. When he stood up at the synagogue in Nazareth and he read from the scroll of Isaiah, he said, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news. Jesus came to spread a word about the coming kingdom of God. And he displayed his authority to give that message through 
these miraculous signs and the things that he did. But ultimately, it's not about whether somebody sees the miracles. It's about whether they listen to his words. Do they hear him with faith? And the promise is for those who hear him with faith, they will receive more. But those who don't hear him with faith, even what they think they have, even the thoughts they think they know about Jesus, even their understanding that they believe they have about Christ, even that is taken away. And so here we are, Windsor District Baptist Church. It's 2021. We're in the midst of a COVID lockdown. We're confronted all around us by the fear of death. You as a Christian, you as a member of this church, have in some way affirmed that you believe death is not the end of the story. That you believe there is something to this Jesus. That you believe that he has the answers for eternal life. But I want to leave you with a question today. Have you come to his feet? Have you come to the end of yourself? Or are you simply a part of the crowd? Ultimately, that's the difference. Proximity to Jesus, your association with the things of Christ, doesn't really mean you have faith in Christ. It's about coming, bowing before him, receiving by faith the good that he has. And if you trust Christ and you know him, let me leave you with one more question. What is it that you're waiting for him to do? You see, maybe like Jairus, you've asked, you've humbled yourself, you've come, and it just hasn't happened. The good news is that God is not bound by our timing. He's not bound by our circumstances. Even death itself does not get the final word. Christ has the final word. Over disasters, over pandemics, over everything, this is our hope. This is our joy, and this is why we worship him. Let's pray. Father, would you bless us this week? May we come before you. May we lay hold of Christ, and may your power be unleashed to heal and restore. Lord, for those whose faith is failing, may they not fear, but may they look to you. May you bless us as we go this week. Amen.